Welcome to the Let's Talk Government podcast, a podcast that is provided for you by the Department of Government at Minnesota State University, Mankato, located in Minnesota in the United States. I am your host, Dr. Pat Nelson, the chairperson of the Government Department. I want to thank you for joining us as we explore different topics about government. Some may be surprising to you and some may not, so please enjoy. Welcome to episode 10 of the Let's Talk Government podcast. Today we are going to talk about qualified immunity and the importance of supervision in law enforcement. I'm joined by three faculty members from the Minnesota State University Mankato Law Enforcement Program. And most importantly, they've all had a variety of professional experience, including supervision as law enforcement officers in law enforcement agencies. You may recognize them from our very first podcast about defund the police, abolish the police and policing today. Associate Professor Dr. Carl Lafada has been a pro member of the program for six years and has professional experience, including supervision with both the Michigan State Police and local agencies in California. Assistant Professor Dr. Thor Dolly has been a member of the program for five years and has professional experience, again, including supervision with the Fargo Police Department in North Dakota and also served as a chief at, with a local agency in Washington State. Assistant Professor Dr. John Reed is in his second year with the program and has professional experience, including supervision with the Louisville Metro Police, and also served as a chief in another agency in Kentucky. So thank you for joining me today. Let's start with the first part of our talk, talking about a term that we've heard a lot in the media. Who wants to start with telling me what is qualified immunity and what does it mean in law enforcement? Uh, well, qualified immunity quite simply means that an officer can conduct their um, duties, they can do their job without fear of lawsuits so long as, or civil liability, so long as they are within the limits of the law, so they're not violating the law, uh, and they are um, not plainly incompetent, as the Supreme Court stated. And this has its roots in the Civil Rights Act of 1871, also known as the Ku Klux Klan Act. And that's actually the, the law that gave Americans the right to sue public officials who violate their legal rights. So what role does an agency play in ensuring that an officer does get qualified immunity um, when they're taking action on a call? John or Thora, would you like to jump in there? What's, what, what's the role of the agency? Well, I think the role of the agency is actually to provide uh, all of the officers and all the employees who work for the organization uh, the knowledge and the skills to, to deal with those particular issues uh, that could come up. While it's almost impossible to determine every issue that will come up, uh, clearly established law uh, or uh, constitutional provisions, like as, such as, just as an example, Fourth Amendment, uh, those need to be uh, trained uh, and people need to be aware of that from a supervisory position to be able to supervise officers on, on those types of things. So Thor, I'm going to kind of turn to you. So if we don't have the ability to sue an officer civilly, what is still available to make sure that an officer is not doing things wrong? Is there any other punishment? Is there anything else that can happen? Yeah, I mean, in addition to the agency itself being sued and having to pay for a lawsuit, an officer can be held criminally responsible for their actions. They can, be, they can suffer personal 
personnel actions against them from the agency, which could be suspension, reprimand, termination. So there's still a number of methods of holding an officer accountable outside of qualified immunity. So that's going to kind of bring us into our discussion about the importance of supervision in law enforcement. We know law enforcement is um, a profession where there's a lot of autonomy. We have that law enforcement officers have discretion to make their own decisions. So why is supervision important? Why do we worry about if law enforcement has good supervision? Who wants to start there? Well, I think that all three of us at the same time. Yeah, exactly. Go ahead, Carl. Okay. So I think the reason supervision is important is that peace officers have an enormous amount of discretion in our society. They have the power to deprive people of their freedoms. They have the power to circumvent due process and take uh, life uh, when they believe what the person is doing is so egregious, it must be immediately stopped. And so you're sending out, uh, in many cases, young 20-somethings with, you know, uh, weeks of training and, you're saying basically apply the law in a fair and balanced manner. And without supervision, uh, without guidance, without the ability to ensure that uh, they're learning the lessons that are going to make them an effective peace officer without holding them accountable when they step out of bounds, even a little bit, um, you're really not upholding the social contract that we have with society that basically says we're loaning you this power and authority and we're doing it under the assumption that it will be used reasonably and to learn the art of the job in practice is not only uh, the result of experience but also proper supervision that shows the officer uh, what those parameters are generally law and policy and how to operate within the law and policy in a manner that is again in accordance with the uh, expectation of the public that a, a peace officer perform their duties in a firm fair and consistent manner John, what do you think? One of the things, I'm going to take it a little bit earlier uh, than Dr. Lofada, and uh, by earlier I'm talking about before that process, is one of the things that we talk about all the time is critical thinking. And a lot of the times, people that are hired on the police department uh, have not made uh, critical decisions uh, or have a way of making those and may not be knowledgeable about that. One of the things that we usually try to do is, as we here in the university talk about, is uh, teach critical thinking. And I think in society, we're always concerned about making uh, the right decision and we put less emphasis on making it the right way. And one of the things that we need to concentrate or we need supervision for is, and we train in policing, is how do you go about making those decisions? And what are the components that you use in almost every decision you make? And what is the order of those different components or stages? And I think that's one reason for supervision to help teach, to help mentor officers, uh, that they learn those types of things and then getting into what Dr. Lafada had talked about. Laura, what do you think? Uh, I think that, you know, this is like uh, Dr. Lafada described, this is one of the most unique professions that exists in our country, which is that people given that power to use force against another person, deprive them of their basic rights, at least for a period of time. 
lock them up, you know, put handcuffs on them, take them to jail, and ultimately potentially use deadly force against them. And, and on top of that, it's done in an environment where you're frequently by yourself, or maybe one or two people are present. So supervision, I think the preparation, like uh, Dr. Reed was talking about, teaching critical thinking skills, preparing them to make difficult decisions is really important. But also because of that, that supervision part being so important is those supervisors, especially first-line supervisors, need to be out there on the road, leading by example, being present at as many calls as they possibly can, knowing that they can't be there all the time, but to help ensure accountability, to help officers make difficult decisions, and, and to, to recognize they have that support, that supervision behind them that's not there as a gotcha, but somebody that's going to support them in making those tough decisions. You know, and one of the things that I had mentioned when I was uh, a supervisor, and I spent most of my time um, as a supervisor on the road uh, on nights, and uh, I was offered opportunities to promote to, to headquarters and element, and I chose not to just because I didn't want to be a cubicle cop. Um, <clears throat> but the point is, is that every shift change when we had a new uh, roster, sometimes every year, every six months, I would tell my officers, I said, look, I'm here to facilitate your success. Um, the policies, the laws, they are what they are. Those are the parameters within which I, I expect you to work. If I cannot trust you to make good decisions, then you shouldn't be here. Uh, and so basically when I would show up on a call, it would be to help. It would be to offer guidance. It would be to teach. Um, but if I couldn't expect them to make those good decisions after they've had some time on the road, then somebody didn't do their job in terms of preparing them. And so as a supervisor, it's my job to not only, again, facilitate, coach, educate, but also take the uh, remedial action necessary to either retrain the individual or take the steps necessary to uh, have them leave the job. And that's something that's very difficult uh, in terms of the uh, administrative integrity because so many supervisors uh, at whatever level, sergeant, lieutenant, and on up, don't have the administrative courage to write a negative performance evaluation, to take the action necessary to uh, either retrain or remove a, a poorly functioning or poorly performing officer, and the problems perpetuate to the point where, sadly, sometimes these officers make uh, really poor decisions that end in someone's life being ended or, or severely injured, and then people look, well, why didn't you do something sooner? I think that fear of account of holding people accountable is is un, it's unfounded in, in a lot of ways I think and it's hard to learn especially as a new supervisor as a new sergeant that that's maybe the most important part of your job because the reality is other officers like in any workplace they want their coworkers held you know accountable for their actions they they want to know what the parameters are of their responsibilities they want to know what they're supposed to do and clearly understand their job but they also want to know that if I do my job, that's important. And also if other people don't, if they don't do their job adequately, if they don't have the adequate training or ability, that something will happen to them because it's too critical. These positions are too important with too much power to have people that are working in them that don't uh, have that feeling of accountability and who have not been held accountable. And I think one of those things, you kind of give the other side of this too, especially today, we've been, as police, asked to document more and more and more. We've tried to push decision-making levels 
to the, the lowest in the organization, which would be sergeants and lieutenants and officers. Uh, but what you hear from a lot of the first line supervision today is that they have so much paperwork to do uh, it, that it's hard for them to get on the street as described by Dr. Lafada and Dr. Dolly. Um, and, and that's one thing as an administrator, you're constantly fighting, trying to get those folks out on the street where they can have hands-on supervision rather than uh, be in the cubicle, just pushing a pen and filling out reports uh, for the administrators. And then you also have issues of span of control as well, because you could have a large geographic area to cover or a large number of officers or, or, or squads on the street. And you may have one supervisor for anywhere from 12 to 25 individuals, depending on what's going on. All right, so let's talk about some challenges. You guys have mentioned, you know, mentoring and teaching, and we really think about that for your, your newer officers. What are some challenges of supervising older officers, ones that have 10, 15, 20 years on? Um, what kind of challenges do you see there, and why is it still important they have good supervision? A lot of times with the, uh, the older officers, they may have come from an environment where they have never been properly supervised. They just had somebody who was essentially, you know, letting them get, get away with whatever they wanted. They were the de facto shift supervisor because they were the senior officer. Um, I remember a uh, time where I had a, a senior trooper when I uh, transferred posts and he was on my shift and was reviewing his investigative reports and his writing was atrocious. And I pulled a few of them out and, and I sat him down and I said, well, look, we need to talk about your report writing. And the first thing out of his mouth was, I've been doing this for 30 years. And I said, well, you must not have been doing it right because, and I showed him different parts of his report. I said, look, you can't end a sentence with and. And you didn't proofread this. You didn't type, check out the typos here. And he got all offended and shift. He switched shifts is what he did to a retired on duty supervisor that would just let him keep getting away with uh, whatever. Um, and so when we talk about lack of accountability, a lot of times, again, it comes down to the lack of administrative courage to confront underperforming officers or lazy officers. And the problem is, is if you have inconsistent supervision across shifts, then you don't have one department vision, which should come from the chief, get transferred down through to the line officers, through the supervisors. You don't have consistency. And if you don't have that consistency, then that is ripe for officers taking extreme actions uh, because they know they can get away with it. And whether that's stealing something or use of force or whatever it is, there's a lack of control there because of a lack of supervision. And oftentimes it's spearheaded by the officers that have been around a while that have never been held accountable for their actions. I think sometimes we make the mistake of thinking that uh, more senior officers don't want that supervision. And there, while there may be some that don't, you know, I, I was just recently talking with a couple other people that are currently in police leadership positions and, and they were, were talking about how when they got that first promotion, it was a little bit, uh, took them at, by surprise that they had some senior officers come in to them and ask questions about how to do certain things. I had the same ex exact same experience. I remember getting promoted to sergeant and having officers who had as much experience as I did or were more senior to me coming to me and asking me questions about how they should do something. And all they really wanted was somebody to just to confirm to them that they were doing the right thing. And that, to me, that was a, was eye opening. I just assumed those senior officers knew how to handle all these situations and they don't, they can be as uncomfortable 
and, and lack that confidence in certain situations, just like everybody else, even young officers. Well, and the laws change, technology changes. I mean, think about computer crimes versus today versus 20 years ago, the internet today versus even 20 years ago. Um, you know, a truly professional officer at any age or at any time in their career knows that the job requires constant learning. And if they're truly professional, like I said, they would want to bounce uh, ideas, concerns, questions uh, against their supervisor because the supervisor should have at least, uh, you know, some of the more technical information that maybe they don't have the time to look up. One of the things that I found uh, as a supervisor was that the most common question I was asked was, hey, Sarge, can I do this? You know, can I, should I, could I? And, you know, you have to have the answer. John, what do you think about this? Well, about I think that, um, I think that a lot of times with younger supervisors, uh, they have a misconception that seniority means knowledge. And it doesn't always mean that. There, there's, uh, like Dr. Lapata said, there's a lot of times where you have uh, senior officers who have been around for a long time that, that haven't been supervised properly before and, and may not uh, be doing the exactly what they should be doing. And I think working with those senior officers while working with a senior officer and working with a younger officer are going to be different how you handle each one of those people. Uh, you, you still work with those folks and, and actively supervise them. Um, I, I did hear a story the other day that I think is really appropriate for our conversation today is there was a couple of officers, one was an officer, one was a, a sergeant that, that went on a run. This was out of state. I was talking to a chief and the sergeant told them um, something went wrong at the, at the scene and there were some complaints and it was being investigated and the sergeant so told the chief that they were there in a support role uh, to try to, I guess, uh, uh, mitigate their accountability for what had occurred. And uh, I told this chief, I said, well, as far as I'm concerned, uh, a sergeant may be in a support role for a duty of a police officer, but a sergeant is never in a support role in a supervisory position. They need to actively be supervising all the time. And, and be uh, able to I, jump in when necessary. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, I remember having a, a, a couple of officers complain to me about one of the other supervisors and what he would do is he would show up on scene and as opposed to kind of hanging back and seeing what or if he's needed, he would, you do this and you do that and you put this in your report and you do that in your report and they basically told him, look, if you want to direct the investigation, then you take primary and we'll assist you. And so the art of being a supervisor is not just pinning on the stripes and barking orders, but the art of being a supervisor, uh, a professional supervisor, is really knowing what kind of a touch each individual officer needs, developing junior and senior officers in a way that it, it basically makes them a more well-rounded officer. You're basically building upon their weaknesses, you're, you're you know, allowing them to work towards their strengths. It really truly is an educator's job, just like in the military. Your job as an NCO, a non-commissioned officer, is to be a trainer, a mentor to develop your people 
Um, and you know, how many officers in law enforcement that get to supervisory roles truly believe that? Sure, many, but there are also some that just don't. I think that role model element is is really important. And and Dr. Lafada mentioned it earlier about needing to have the answers when you when people ask you questions. But I think the most important part that I learned early on as a supervisor was what I'd learned from previous supervisors who never said I don't know. Then there is a a power of being able to say I don't know, but I'll find the answer for you. To this to to pass on to your officers that you somehow got some promotion and now you know everything is unrealistic. So you have to, you know, reflect that it's okay to say, I don't know. And then secondarily to acknowledge making mistakes because you're going to have to, you know, officers are going to make mistakes. So you as a chief have to be able to understand that certain times it's just a mistake. Maybe it needs to be addressed by, you know, a change of policy or training, but the reality is everybody's going to make mistakes. And if you as a supervisor will never acknowledge yours, if you'll never say, I don't know, you, you pass on to your, the people that are working for and with you that they shouldn't do that either. That it's somehow a, a, it's showing weakness to say, I don't know, or to acknowledge that you made a mistake. And maybe even in some circumstances, apologize for what you said or did that might've been inappropriate because of a mistake you made. Well, I'm that one of the things that, sorry, I was going to say one of the things that, that I always, always, always told, uh, told my officers was that if you think I'm screwing something up, if you think I'm not doing the right thing, you need to tell me and you're never going to get in trouble for it. You're never going to, I'm never going to be offended. I would much rather you tell me uh, that I'm not doing the right thing. You don't think that I'm doing something appropriate before I do it. Right. So it's just like, you know, if you see my fly down on a traffic stop, tell me that much rather know it ahead of time beforehand. Um, by the way, that was, that is a true story. Um, <laughs> Well, uh, since we've got the true story there, okay, before we kind of move on to something more serious again, I know that in law enforcement especially, we learn from everybody else around us. And before you became a supervisor, what is one thing you saw a supervisor do that you swore you would never do yourself as a supervisor? Well, I have you think about that. Um, one of them that I saw before I got promoted to sergeant is uh, one of my sergeants lost his temper and he pointed to the stripes on his arm and said, do you see these stripes? I can do what I want because I have those stripes. And I swore to God, I would never point to that authority of just being a sergeant to do something just because I was a sergeant. So, so let's hear it. What did you learn from a supervisor you swore you would never do as a supervisor yourself? I know you got stories. Or FTO, you could do that too. I, well, I worked midnights for the majority of my career, and um, I never, ever, ever wanted to be the sergeant uh, who was asleep uh, when the Code 3 uh, assist came in, or, or at all. But, I mean, there was one that I remember quite – we were in the middle of some things, and, uh, you know, we called for assistance, and that supervisor was asleep. And we found out after the fact, and of course, nothing really happened to that individual, but yeah, sleep. I, I, the one that comes to mind to me, it's, it, I had a sergeant who was a very nice guy, who also had a very difficult time holding people accountable, but he routinely said, well, he would do things on calls that we knew you shouldn't do, that frequently were too risky and violated tenants of officer safety. And his, the message he would say afterwards would be, do as I say, not as I do. And I, I thought, that is a really terrible message to send to a bunch of young officers. And, and that group that I was with at that time was a bunch of young officers looking for role models. And while he was a very nice guy, 
he wasn't a very good role model as a supervisor. All right, John. Mine was uh, a lieutenant came in roll call and said, uh, y'all get out here and work. If you, if you're right, I'm behind you a hundred percent. And if you're wrong, you're on your own. And I thought, you know, if I'm right, I really don't need anybody behind me a hundred percent. It's, it's when you make a mistake, uh, you need to, to be mentored and taught and, and helped and those types of things. And I'm not talking about egregious mistakes, but um, I, I just thought everybody, we're in a, one thing I think that's really unusual about policing is we're in a humanistic business, but perfection is expected. And uh, it's hard to achieve perfection. I used to tell my folks, we're, you know, we're shooting for excellence every time, uh, but we're going to make mistakes and, and we're going to learn from those mistakes. And I think uh, that's important. And I, I wish that lieutenant would have said it, but at least I learned something from him, uh, even if it was the way not to do something. Well, all right. Well, we're going to kind of bring us back to one thought here. Oh, Carl, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, that's okay. No, I was just going to mention just real quick. I uh, sent Thor the other day uh, uh, a uh, article from uh, California State University, San Bernardino, where on surveillance camera, a sergeant was briefing uh, their off his officers about enforcing the mask mandate. They got into a bit of a heated discussion and the sergeant pulled a gun on his officer. So that's now under investigation. It is caught on camera. Right. That'd be well, one of the worst I've seen. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> definitely. All right. So let's, let's think, I'm going to ask each one of you for some closing thoughts here, but obviously the importance of supervision. In fact, you can have an officer who's covered by qualified immunity, but if you have a supervisor that did not provide supervision, they could be sued as part of a lawsuit, but the importance of supervision, what, what does it needs to happen within law enforcement agencies to ensure officers are getting the supervision they need? And what can be done at higher levels of supervision to ensure those first line supervisors are getting the support that they need? So I know I've got two former chiefs here and I've got, um, we've all had supervisory experience. What can we do to work on that in law enforcement agencies? Carl's kind of touched on this, but the, it starts at the chief's level, setting the expectations down through the organization. You have to create a culture of accountability and an expectation for it, for each supervisor to hold those people accountable. And if, if they don't do that, then there's a, a break in the link. There's a, the chain is, is broken. And, and so it, it's not just set, you know, coming in one day and saying, these are the expectations. It's going to the different work groups. It's being out there. It's engaging in communication with all levels of your organization. Depending on the size, it may be unrealistic for you to know everybody or talk to every single person, but they'll know if you were there. I mean, the fact that a chief comes out and works on a night shift or is out on the road at, with the officers from time to time, it sets uh, an ex, you know, a, a, a culture that says, I, I'm the same you as a leader are the same as everybody else. Yes, you've been given some additional responsibility, but at the heart, you're still that line level law enforcement officer with, that has, that could do all those same things. And, and so to me, it's a cultural thing. If you don't set that culture within the organization, 
your supervisors don't feel supported. They aren't going to hold their officers accountable because you're taking a chance when you do that. If, if you hold someone accountable and your superiors don't support you on that, the lesson is I'm not doing that again because it's painful. It's not easy. Like Dr. Lafada mentioned at the beginning, you have to confront someone and tell them something they probably don't want to hear. Nobody enjoys doing that. John, I'm going to turn to you next because you worked in a very large agency. Louisville Metro is a large agency. What do you think? Yeah, I, th I think there are a number of things. I think, first of all, probably looking, um, leadership was mentioned several times, and I, I think leadership is important. But I think uh, for some reason, traditionally in law enforcement, people look for leadership toward the higher levels of the organization. I think it's important to train and mentor officers in leadership uh, to bring them forth. And I th otherwise, you have incidents where you have officers who will not come forward uh, if they see wrongdoing. Uh, you want everybody to be a leader out there. I think as an administrator, you have to have clear policies and clear rules, uh, policies that are not ambiguous, that people understand the difference between a policy and a rule. And I have found that uh, there are multitudes of people out here in policing who don't understand the difference in which you can work uh, like policies, you can work within guidelines or, or uh, levels of discretion where so is in rules are strictly either prohibited or required. Uh, I think good training is important. I think there has to be on the chief's level a commitment to training. Uh, and, and by that, I'm saying usually if they're budget cuts or something of that nature, training's the first thing to go. And you get out what you put into those particular things. I, I, I can't speak for exactly today, and I know each department's a little bit different, uh, but when I left a couple of years ago, on average, each officer went through three to four weeks of training a year. And people are like, oh, wow, that's a lot. But it, it really isn't uh, when you come down to those things. Uh, I, I think it's very, very important. Um, I, I think you have to set the culture, as Dr. Daly said, as, about uh, allowing mistakes and uh, allow decisions to be made, do it by mentoring and guidance, but you got to allow mistakes and turn those into positive experiences. And here again, I'm not talking about egregious acts, uh, not, not mistakes of the heart, but uh, a mistake of the head that you need to work with folks, make that positive training experience uh, where they can learn and pass that on to, to other folks. Dr. Lovato, let's hear your ideas. Well, I'm going to take a more macro approach. Um, there's some research that I'm doing on a, kind of unrelated to this, but there's an article from July 2020 Star Tribune, and uh, Mr. Brian Peters, who's the executive director of the Minnesota Police and Peace Officers Association, uh, was quoted saying, uh, we're trying to fix the rank and file cop, but nobody is focusing on the leadership at some of these departments. And that really... Uh, speaks volumes. You know, people look at, you know, when an officer makes a mistake or uses force inappropriately, oh, the officer is bad, the officer is this, the officer is that. But what about the culture? 
at all levels of supervision that allowed this to happen. And so to have a standard or to improve a standard rather, you first have to have a standard. And I'm gonna pick on Minnesota here because there is no standard whatsoever for law enforcement supervisors. And so the national, the national stat on officers with military experience is about 19%. So these are people that you would assume understand chain of command, understand, and I'm not talking about you know marching lockstep and things of that nature, but they understand leadership, they understand the importance of good leadership, they've either seen it or been in those positions. Here, you know, you go through your training and post certifies you and you're off on your own. Whereas, and I'll use California as an example, first time you're a first line supervisor, that includes FTO because you're responsible for another officer. You have to go within 12 months to an 80 hour course, supervisor course. When you become a watch commander or lieutenant, within 12 months, you have to go to a three week, 104 hour course. And then once you become a chief or command officer, again, you are mandated to go to another two-week course that is required by post. Otherwise, your licensure gets suspended because they understand the importance. We don't have that here. The closest we have is the Michigan, or I'm sorry, the Minnesota Chiefs of Police has a leadership academy that is a three and a half day leadership academy. When you're taking a 20-something year old officer with no supervision experience, you know, maybe no supervisory experience outside of law enforcement, and you throw them into that position with maybe kind of OJT, let's see how it goes, don't be surprised when maybe they're not the most astute supervisor because they, if they don't have that, that good mentoring, they don't have maybe a natural affinity for the position, they're going to learn by making mistakes. And the problem is, is when a peace officer and a supervisor makes mistakes, it's the public that usually suffers and we are not upholding our commitment to that public by putting undertrained people out on the street. And so what we need to do in Minnesota and elsewhere across the country is have states mandate appropriate training for supervisors if we expect to fix the problems at the line officer level. And I just want to clarify, OJT means on-the-job training for anybody that might not have understood that acronym. So I'm going to wrap this up. And I actually, my, one of my ideas kind of dovetails on what Carl was talking about is we also need to make sure law enforcement agencies encourage a culture that if somebody is not a supervisor, so they get promoted to sergeant and maybe they try to be a sergeant, but not everybody can be a leader and not everybody can be a supervisor, that there has to be alternates available for those people to still move throughout their department without being punished for not being a very good leader or supervisor. We see that with FTOs, which is field training officers as well. You think somebody might be a good field training officer, but they, they aren't. They just don't have that, um, the capability or ability to teach another person. But instead of punishing officers who are not able to fulfill those roles, we need to find alternatives for them as well. Because then we may have those that are retired on duty or not comfortable um, holding other people accountable, give them other opportunities to still contribute to their department. So, well, gentlemen, I'm sure I'm going to bring you back at least once, if not twice in the spring on different topics, but I thank you for your time. And I thank the listeners for joining us again to talk about qualified immunity and the importance of law enforcement leadership and supervision. Thank you for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Government. If you have suggestions for future episode topics or other areas you'd like us to cover, please visit our website at link.mnsu.edu backslash let's talk gov to submit your ideas. Join us every Tuesday for a new episode and thank you for listening. <laughs>